Good morning, good evening, or good night, wherever you are in the world, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If it sounds like I am whispering, I absolutely am, because it is a very early morning edit, and there are other people in this household that are asleep. I had the opportunity to speak with yet another Revive Stronger coach. We've had many of the other coaches on at Revive Stronger. You guys have loved those episodes, so I've no doubt you're going to love this one. I get to speak with Harry Smith, who is a Revised Stronger Coach, but also a Mac Nutrition Certified Coach. We're going to speak about lean bulking and how to basically not make it a free-for-all discussing some of the training structures, the nutrition methodologies, and also tracking specific metrics so that you're not just going to get fat, which is basically most people's biggest fear when it comes to a lean bulking phase. You go to being shredded to the bone and think, you know what, I want to put some muscle on. Sometimes not shredded to the bone, but shredded enough or lean enough. And you're afraid of, oh, damn, my abs are going to go. And, and Harry's going to discuss some of the protocols and that he uses to mitigate some of these effects somewhat. So without further ado, please, please, <laughs> please enjoy this episode with Harry Smith. You're listening to The Abby Khan Show, a podcast that inspires people to achieve what they once believed was impossible. My name's Abby Khan. I'm an actor, health and fitness coach, and it is my mission to connect with interesting people, share their stories, find out how they optimize their lives for success, and how you can do the same. Harry Smith from Revive Stronger, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, just for the couple of people that may not know who you are and what you do, can you just give us a little bit of the background on you? I, I can. I'm not, I'm not the world's most interesting person, but I have been doing this for a little while. So I've been a in-person trainer for about seven years. So I've worked with all sorts of people. And then for the last, uh, how long have I been with Revive? For the last like, six months, I had to look at my watch then. I don't know why that would help. Um, for the last six months or so, I've been working with Revive Strong as one of the, their team of coaches. And we focus on taking people who are kind of at that early intermediate stage of their, I guess their bodybuilding journey, whether that's recreational or really serious, and they actually go on stage. And then we essentially take them through that entire journey to get them to the point where they're an advanced trainee and they, they really know what they're doing and they're really confident. And they know all about gaining muscle and dropping body fat. Um, and I'm also a Mac Nutrition certified nutritionist. So I just have a little bit of, I guess that, that the, the best thing about that course is it really gives you a lot of confidence when it comes to sort of the nutrition coaching side of things. But yeah, I think I'm rambling now. No, it's good. Why did you go into the mat nutrition course specifically? I mean, there's a lot out there. I know obviously Martin's in, in the UK, but um, why did you go for that specific course? The reason I went for mat nutrition was when I was doing my research on all the courses out there, it it's appeared to be the most evidence-based one. And what, what I mean by that is I'm not saying that the other courses aren't evidence-based. Like obviously precision, precision nutrition is... The, the next best well-known one, I guess, or it's probably more well-known than malnutrition. And, and it is evidence-based, but it did just seem to have some kind of biases in there, at least from what from my perception. So the, one of the reasons I went with malnutrition is I just felt like it was going to provide the, the least biased perspective on nutrition coaching. And at the point in my career when I was really considering it, I was at that point when I was really frustrated with the, the fitness industry anyway. I felt like almost every direction I was turning in, there was someone talking bullshit there someone on youtube telling you you've got to die for your body type like all that shit and i just felt like i, I need to have especially because i worked in a in a commercial gym at the time as well as, as well as the online coaching the kind of questions i was getting were i suppose different to the kind of questions i'm getting now as a revived stronger coach it was very much like someone would come to me in some kind of consultation wanting to 
learn how to get jacked and how to get shredded. And then they would say, I'd say, oh, you need to do you know the things we already know. So, right, you're, you're carrying a bit too much body fat. We need to get you in a calorie deficit. The best way to do that is probably to incorporate these habits into your lifestyle. And then your training is looking a little bit, but you're not doing enough. So we will change it this way and make sure you're getting more out of each session. And they'd be like, but why? Because this guy on YouTube says I should do this. And then it was like trying to compete with those people where that, that person is actually saying, why should I listen to you over him? And you're like, because that guy's an idiot, but it doesn't doesn't help. Like I didn't have anything behind me to say like, you should listen to me because I'm a new certified. And that was the main reason why I went for it. And what are, um, I mean, we've had a fair few guests on that have been through the Matt Nutrition. Uh, I know a lot of people that also have as well. Um, what are the couple of the biggest things that you took away from that, from what you knew before to to going through that journey through Matt Nutrition? Uh, confidence in my coaching ability was the biggest one. Like, I was on, generally, like, when you know the basics, you know everything, but you also know nothing. But you know, you know enough to get good results with your clients. But what it did was kind of, it took you on the whole journey of like, yeah, you know enough to help your clients, and this is all the things you should know, and it comes right back to here. So instead of like only knowing, instead of the depth of my knowledge being like here, it, it took me on this massive journey where the depth of my knowledge came to like all the way down here. People can't see who are listening. I'm, I'm gesticulating. <laughs> like imagine we have a massive uh, swimming pool, and it's really. I was at the shallow end, and then moving to the deep end just just gives you so much more confidence, I guess, and in just your ability to coach people and just the. And not just thinking of, I guess it made me not think of nutrition coaching on the day-to-day. Like the way I had been in the past with people was very much like, here are your calories and macros. And then when they come back to you and they, they can't stick to it, you're like, well, why can't you stick to it? And then it kind of gave me that, I get, yeah, like I keep saying confidence, but how, how it helped me structure a, a nutrition lifestyle for someone, not just a nutrition day. I'll put it there. That's probably the best way to put it. Mm. And what got you started, I guess, in the industry altogether? pursuing the, the health and fitness career path what was that sorry what got you started in the whole industry itself in the health and fitness uh, world um I, I i've always felt like my background's really boring so i started off as someone who was in my, in my professional life i guess like in school i just definitely i definitely knew i didn't want to do any of the things that any of my mates were doing like they were they were getting excited about becoming i, I guess like going into the city and doing finance stuff. And I was like, how's that excite you? That's boring. Um, and at the time, I was only interested in getting my arms and chest as jacked as possible. So I went in to get a real job. And that real job was essentially the first job that said they'd take me, which was a civil engineering firm in the city. And then doing that, that I, I felt really lonely during that time because you know when you leave school, suddenly taken away from all your friends, working 12-hour shifts because it's the construction industry. And then the only thing I was doing in my free time was training. And then the only thing I was doing in my other free time and my commute time was learning about training. And then I kind of became like the, I guess, the low-key personal trainer in the office anyway, where people started to work out with me and ask me questions about training and stuff like that. And then I don't know if you've ever worked in construction. Like yeah. people, it's, it's almost like, I guess it's almost like the military in a way. People, If people find a weakness, they will latch onto it and they will relentlessly, like I guess, tease you about it and just give you shit about it. Like, it's just like working with your older brother. Like, and because it's civil engineering, you have the, the academic engineers on one side of the office, then you have all the, the site foremen and stuff like that on the other side of the office. And then like, I remember kind of giving all those guys advice whenever they asked it. And then I put together this program for someone. Now, what was it? Uh, yeah, there's, so 
the two people were having a conversation about how to drop body fat. And then I kind of chimed in with my two cents and then ended up going on some rant, I guess, for like 10 minutes. And then I just remember this this northern guy, I guess, from somewhere near where, where you're originally Probably. From. He's got a big he mouth, went, probably like, was. Why the fuck are you here? <laughs> and then that literally, like, I guess, changed my mind. And I was like, yeah, why am I here? And he was like, you should be doing something to do with personal training. And that was the first time I think I'd seriously considered it. And then I looked into it and then I got myself qualified. And then, but the main motivation, I guess, was to figure out how to get, because I, I, I was disappointed with my own results. And that was the main motivator, thinking like, I'm doing everything that Jack Guy on YouTube is telling me to do, and I'm still not jacked. There must be more. And it was the pursuit of more knowledge. And I always wanted more and more and more and more. And then I got myself like certified, started working with different clients. But it still definitely wasn't a motivator for me. And then I think like with most PTs, when you start working with people, you real, you kind of, before you know it, the motivator becomes helping other people and you can't exactly pinpoint the point where that shift happened but yeah it definitely did happen probably within the first i guess probably within the first month of training people yeah. not the northern the northerners in britain we are a philosophical bunch uh, which obviously inspired the, the career path that you've taken yeah um so what i wanted yeah. to delve into is, is to basically pick your brain about about what you've sort of learned on, on your journey and particularly delving into setting up a successful lean muscle building protocol. So we just take a hypothetical example of somebody that has dropped body fat, they've been in a deficit for you know 12 or so weeks and they've dropped down to a decent level and now that, you know what, I want to maintain as much of this leanness as I can and I want to build muscle tissue without becoming a fat sod. So what would that sort of look like from a nutritional perspective we'll start with? What does that process look like to start with for you? It's difficult to start from a nutrition perspective. I, I normally start from a body comp analysis. Like body okay, cool. Analysis. We'll go there. So we'll go there. I, I guess that would be included in nutrition anyway because that influences the nutrition the most. Um, but I've had this before where people come to me and they they say exactly that. Like, I want to set up a, a lean muscle building protocol for the next rest of my life, I guess. And then looking at them, like an, an easy way to put it in my head is like if they're male, is there's, there's no abdominal definition. So I'm like, we're definitely not in a position where you want to be putting yourself in a calorie surplus because we're only going to have to take you back out of it probably in the next three to six months. So ideally, I like to start a muscle building protocol when someone has uh, the, the leaner, the better without it becoming like a massive stressor. You know, like you've had it with clients, dieting them down to that really nice kind of, I guess, like photo shoot ready uh, leanness, not massively lean, but maybe a couple of weeks away from photo shoot is the sweet spot. It's, it's the part of the diet that they find easy you know, a bit, I mean, where they're like, oh, I really like dieting. I guess yeah. I could do this forever. And then when they want to get like the super shreds to get those really scary looking photos it's, and that part of the diet is like 20 times harder than that. Those like four weeks are 20 times harder than the previous six months. Yeah. So I like to get people to the point before it gets hard. And I feel like that's a really, really good place to start a mass from if we're talking in the long term. So I guess I'd call it beach lean would be where I like to see people. And then setting up the nutrition, the most important thing is that people don't just get complacent with it that's the that's the biggest problem i see with people in muscle building phases is they start well they they know that they need to say eat 3200 calories a day but they go at it with no structure and they just freeball it that all they do is look at my fitness power every day and then when they realize after a few days that oh i've got so many calories to play with i don't really need to be tracking this stringently and they go from tracking everything to tracking nothing and then in three months time they're like how the hell did i get so fat and they just start it's, it's the I guess it's the nutrition structure. So the way I would like to structure it 
and this goes for um, dieting phases, maintenance phases, and muscle gaining phases. Is I like people to have pretty much exactly the same structure, but the only thing that changes is the composition of the meals in the first place. So for most clients, it looks something like four meals a day. When I say meal, it basically means protein feeding. So I'll divide their protein target over four to five servings a day, and we space them out evenly. And what I'd like to see is that whether they're in a dieting phase or maintenance or calorie surplus, they're still eating a similar breakfast around the same time, like a similar snack around the same time, similar lunch, similar dinner. And then the only thing that changes is essentially the amount of carbohydrates, the amount of fat or the amount of vegetables we have in each of those meals. And then when we've got that solid structure in place, so to the point where we can literally refer to them as like meal one, meal two, meal three, meal four, then um, just like to build that plan, if like build the, the massive nutrition plan. So if they're coming out of a cup, we already know we've got meal one, meal two, meal three, meal four, and then we just essentially increase. For the main, the main thing I do is increase their starchy carbs and increase their fruit and then let them space it however they want, but make it really important that we've got to keep that structure in place and it's that structure that's going to add longevity to the massing phase as soon as you start to be like uh, by letting the meals blend together or skipping meals or what i get a lot is people trying to make up missed meals because you know you reach that point on a mass where satiety is the limiting factor where you just feel full all the time and you don't have any desire to eat and then you like clients what people do it before their clients i guess every friday becomes domino's day and then every saturday becomes like an extension of that because they're like, oh, I was under my calories like Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, so I'm just going to eat pizza on Fridays. And then, uh, and yeah, and not being honest with themselves as well. So not not tracking things regularly. I've, I've muddled myself. But anyway, so we want to set up that nutrition protocol so we know how many calories someone's in. We only want to be in a slight surplus. So for most people, I start it around, around a 200 to 300 calorie surplus because people's metabolism, I don't know if their metabolism adapting or their energy expenditure increasing but typically I have to make a calorie adjustment to someone who's massing within the first four weeks so the initial calories you put them on and then they gain weight for two weeks and then that just becomes their maintenance and I think that just is probably just like I'm a fidgeter by nature and I'm guessing that it just makes people just a bit more yeah their needs gonna drive up yeah yeah and then um, we want to make sure that we are tracking some measurements so for most people Obviously, we'll do progress photos every at least every month and then measurements as well. So I like to do th- circumference measurements on waist, hips, and whatever other body parts they care about. But for men specifically, the most important ones are waist and hips because 90% of my male clients tend to gain most of the body fat on the back of their hips first. So if you're only using progress pictures, you can get caught out, as that happened to you before, mm. where someone's like, you're like, you still looking all right, still looking all right, still looking all right. And then they turn around and you're like, holy shit. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Where the hell did that come from? Just, yeah, it's all yeah. been like, it's, I'm exactly that way. Like it all packs on my back. So if yeah. I'm not honest with myself, I can tell myself I look fine for way longer than I look fine for. And uh, I've got some photos actually, I'll send them to you on Instagram. Where, yeah. And it's, it's interesting how your perception changes when you're like peak mass versus normal body weight. You're like, you're looking at yourself thinking you've got abdominal separation. And then when you look back at the photo and you actually do have abdominal separation, you're like, how did I, how did I see abs there? Like how? But um, yeah, so the most important things are keeping the regular measurements in place and having an idea of of not knowing when those measurements are not looking the way you want them to look. So for me, that's when the essentially the expansion of the waist measurement is stripping out the the other measurements. So if we're seeing an even kind of increase all over, 
which is what uh, every mass I've ever done with someone, you always see this. So there's an even increase all over to a certain point, and then what starts to happen is every time you do a new set of measurements, there's not much change anywhere except the waist. And then when you get to that point, that's typically a, a place to do some kind of... Um, I, I don't like saying mini-cut because people. I feel like the fitness industry has... Um, like the the idea of a mini cut is is wrong. Like I don't know how to how how to articulate what I'm trying to say. I just like to call it like a just like, I guess a, a short clean up phase because the mini cut has been marketed as uh, not not deliberately, but it's just something that people see as almost like something attractive, and it definitely isn't. <laughs> it's not fun. Have you ever done one? Yeah, it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's not fun at all. It's not like the diet. Like you're not. It's it's one. It's a diet you're doing purely for performance and body comp reasons you're not doing it for looks mm. and i've had so many clients who feel let down because they expected some kind of dramatic change mm. and it's like all we're doing is literally like it's like you've poured a guinness and there's a bit too much of a head and you're just shaving that head off that's kind of what we're doing we're not trying to like empty this glass halfway and it's only buying us i feel like mini cuts typically only buy you one or two more uh, blocks so if we took a block is six weeks of time in my head so one six-week mini cut typically buys you maybe six to twelve weeks more massing, and each time you do one, you get less and less out of it. So with most clients, I'd expect a, a long-term gaining phase to last um, anywhere from a minimum, absolute minimum of six months, and I've taken it to two years with some clients. But that's only that typically is the client who you would classify as an as an ectomorph anyway. Not that I like the body typing, but the kind of person where, funnily enough, it's usually the people who mass on higher calories tend to do it for longer in my experience and I think that's probably many lifestyle factors in that as well like if someone's massing on like four and a half thousand calories they're typically more active than other people and I think all those things have some nuanced effects that we can't really measure like high activity and stuff like that but I think I'm just rambling now have I, have I answered no the you've answered the question of all no it's great so basically we just got into when we're trying to go into that lead bulking protocol, it's just a slight surplus, not changing too much from, a, I guess, a behavior and a habitual perspective. We want to just keep everything the same. All we're basically doing is making a little tweak to giving you more food, more fuel, so you can train harder, recover faster, all that sort of stuff. I'm interested to hear, you know when you've got people that, do you like to see people mainly, for, for most part of the year, stick at maintenance calories? Um, or even in a slight surplus, or would you rather them sticking just a very, very sort of small deficit? Is there a, is there a, I guess a caloric intake that you'd like to see per people sit at for the most part of the? I mean, if someone's healthy and they're a decent sort of level of body fat that they want to be in, where would you sort of like to see them for the most part? Because ideally, I guess we want to try and continue to keep building muscle, like for the yeah. most part of the year. Um, I like to get clients to a point where they're not using a calorie tracking tool. Mm. So I like to get them to a point where I guess you could you would consider the phase maintenance, but I, there's no way of knowing that whether they're in a, like day to day, they could be in a deficit or a surplus or maintenance. I just like to see people at the point where they can maintain their condition on lifestyle, not on any dependence on any kind of like tracking devices. Mm. But, but I appreciate that. Like for the most, it, it depends on the client and the goal. Like if that, if that's like, someone I consider a more general population. So someone who just wants to look really good year round, <clears throat> it might take us six months. It might take us 18 months to get to the point where we've been through some fat loss phases, some muscle building phases. And now we're at a point where they really like where they are, but because they've had experience in the cut and in the mass, they feel confident and they can give them a go on their own as well. But they also aren't dependent on 
my fitness power or anything like that. So that's ideally where I'd like to get that kind of person. If someone, like I guess most trainers um, and people, I guess that would work revive, revive Stronger, just always want to be increasing muscle mass, then I've forgotten your question. <laughs> my brain just went blank. <laughs> so for the most part of the year, where would you like to sort of see people? Ideally, we've got to a phase okay. where they're not using calorie trackers. Would you like them to slowly be building muscle throughout the year, just sitting where they're at? I guess for a health perspective, maybe that's a good way like, to go. It sounds like a really annoying question, but I'd like them to be doing the thing they're most motivated to do. Hmm. Because if they're motivated to do it, they're gonna you're gonna get more out of it. Like have you ever have you ever been like pushed a client into a goal that you think is best for them, but they don't think is best for them? Initially that's the way I thought. I was like, I need to get you lean as fuck because a photo shoot's gonna look good for me. Do you know what I'm saying? Like and for a while it was the Yeah. It, that was the way and then it was uh, it was a weird switch of like that's not their goal. Like they don't want to get, they want to get lean, but they don't want to get the lean where I want to take them. Yeah. And uh, it's important to always remember what the client's goals are. That mm. sounds like I'm preaching a bit, but that's the mistake that I think loads of fitness, team, fitness industry professionals make. And then mm. like myself included, especially um, now, like revive strong, have a particular clientele. It's, it's, you can get yourself caught in the rinse and repeat mindset of like, it's like typically we work with we work with all kinds of people, but the typical client is like a, a male in their early twenties who is often a personal trainer or has a, a, a huge interest in like gaining muscle and then getting shredded. And it can be it you can almost feel like right, let's go, we're getting shredded, and then we're massing you. And then you just have to keep it and like really remind yourself of what the client's specific goals are. So if that client does want to say pursue bodybuilding. And actually go on stage then obviously we'll have to essentially follow the seasonal cycles of bodybuilding we'll have to make sure that they're lean when it's appropriate to be lean make sure that we set them up for a good contest prep diet and there's all different things that play into that like we don't want to be finishing someone's mass their, their 18 month mass six months out from their show because then you're going to have to literally like drop them off a cliff in terms of a calorie deficit and um it's just making sure people are like the right distance away like people underestimate how long it takes to lose body fat However, I can generally say for most people, however long you think it's going to take, it's going to take you twice that long and a bit longer. So with that in mind, you want to make sure that, like, again, with a contest prep diet, you know how I said that I like the starting point of a mass to be kind of beach lean. Mm. I like the starting point of a contest prep diet to be pretty much the same. Mm. Because you, even if that means you, you break the diet into like two distinct phases, you've probably heard like the diet before the diet, that terminology. Yeah. yeah. It's like, we, this is where we, we drop off most of the body fat without the pressure of a show. And then we'll cruise. Uh, that sounds like steroid terminology, doesn't it? We'll cruise. <laughs> no, we're not, we won't be cruising. We'll, we'll kind of maintain. At, we, we'll get to a point where we can maintain your condition for a bit and drop some, some some like diet fatigue and figure out if you still want to do the show. Because for a lot of people, when they've been this happened to me as well. When you've been massing for ages, you love everything about life until you get to the point where you're just that little bit too chubby, and then you think you're super stoked for a show or super stoked for a photo shoot or something like that, and then you do that kind of initial fat loss phase and then you realize how much you hate it and then when you hit that point where you are beach lean i know i've had this myself where i'm like do i really care that much that i want to do the next bit of the diet or not and then it's important to like have that conversation with the client like look we're back here we're back in a really healthy spot do you still want to go ahead with this if so awesome we'll do it if not that's fine and i feel like that's an important question that you need to kind of remember to ask but um, i keep forgetting your questions no, it's good. You're well, you're answering them, which is fantastic. So I, I I love that part. What I wanted to go back, I guess, back to is the, when we're structuring this this lean bulking phase, and we're in this very slight surplus. 
Is there a, a time or do you have a rough guideline that you have, I guess, this in the back of your head? Again, it's going to be client to client where you go, you know what, we're roughly going to sit around three to four weeks looking to just make that weight increase. And then we're going to pull it back a little bit and do a quote unquote mini cut just so, so you're not going to get a little bit too far. Is there a protocol that you like using? Um, yeah, I tend to find with most people you get like about 16, what's four times six? Yeah, about about 16 to 24 weeks before you ever need to do like the first, I guess, clean up phase or mini cut. And then the, like nutritionally, I generally find that massing, like when you're on a diet, you have a really predictable rate of weight loss every week, typically. But I've always found a massing is, is a lot less um, predictable and it's a lot less consistent. And whatever amount you are aiming for, you typically just get what you're given. It's, it's difficult to adjust things i guess so like say like you're i i, I like to see people gaining about one percent of their body weight a month when they're in a massing phase that i'd consider that to be a lean massing phase so let's say you've got an 80 kilo person so that means you're looking to gain like around 200 grams a week and then what i tend to find is it's that mass right 200 grams a week yeah i think it is mm. um and then you typically find like you might get like 100 grams one week 300 grams another week you might lose 100 grams the next week and the important thing is to take a zoomed out perspective like tend to look at it month to month rather than week to week and then also sometimes you find that their body they, they just want to gain 300 grams a week and then you try and slow it down and then it doesn't slow down and then you change the calories and it just seems to stay where it's at and then you think all right i guess this just isn't going to be a longer massing phase because sometimes like you've probably heard people say it before but it, with with fitness pursuits often any progress is good progress and it's really difficult to like specify what that's going to be like yeah so what we want you to gain 200 grams a week your body's telling us it wants to gain 100 grams a week so that's what we're going to do because often you might find something like they're gaining 100 grams a week um and then we increase their calories by 100 but that 100 calorie increase results in their quality of life massively declining because that extra 100 calories for some reason their body's just like nope and they're, they're so full all the time they start missing meals and their motivation to train drops because they feel like they're eating all the time and stuff like that, even though it's just a tiny increase. So it's often finding the sweet spot with the, well, it's always finding the sweet spot with the person that you're working with. So when we're looking at the, um, the, the lean bolts being sort of completed, somebody's happy with, with where they're at. Is it a case of going, okay, you know what we're going to do? We're going to sit you at maintenance for a little while to regain this homeostasis and then drop you. Or is it a case of, cool, we've got to where you want to be, straight back into a deficit? Uh, I tend to take the first approach, but I don't know. I'm not aware of any kind of scientific research that tells us that that's the best mm. thing to do. But um, I remember an analogy. I think it came from um, Roderick Chavez was that like muscle building is like a train. It's like, it's like a train moving. So yes, the, the, you applied the brakes here or you applied the brakes here, but that momentum is still moving forwards for a while. Mm. And I, I kind of, feel like that theoretically makes a lot of sense like the muscle building machinery isn't just going to switch off because you changed from surplus to deficit there's going to be like a, a time to i guess change direction so what i wouldn't what i don't like to do is suddenly go from like mass to cut because i feel like that train is kind of still moving that way i like to spend even if it's just like two weeks or so at maintenance just to let things kind of level off and figure out where that person's at and and this is you never i don't like changing goals really fast for clients too because there's, there's that mental reprogramming that needs to take place. Have you ever had that with um, 
dieting clients where they, they like completely fall apart when you put them in a, a calorie surplus or something like that because they're so used to all this structure and you start you, you can see that they, they've still got all their fat loss habits in place hmm. and then you're trying to say like you, you don't need to do that anymore like, you don't need to do 100 calories of cardio before every session they're like yeah but i want to you, know, you don't need to like you, you end up having those conversations so i'd like to take it's more of a, a mental reprogramming period so if say someone's like at the end of an 18 month bulk or not bulk lean mass lean gains we will typically spend maybe like three to five weeks at maintenance but what we'll do in that phase is just start to realign their daily habits in line with what the new goal would be which in this case is a, is a fat loss phase because if you're like i said i like to have the same structure with someone day in day out but if that structure that, that structure inevitably changes it, it tends to i like to move it as like muscle fiber types you've got like type one type two type two b type two a that kind of stuff it, in a massing phase those habits will start to skew more towards the end of being fat if that makes any mm. sense like mm. Picking like let lower activity, more food, uh, higher palatable food, all that kind of stuff. And what we want to do is spend a period to realign them towards this end of the spectrum before going all in that way. Because yeah. otherwise, you reach the point where they're like, "I'm struggling to stick to the calories," and you're like, "Yeah, why are you having cocoa pops for breakfast on a cup?" Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember the um, the time when I had to get a client, and he was averaging around twenty thousand steps a day just purely because of his job and stuff. And uh, we we finish his dieting phase. Like, cool, he wants to get muscle tissue. So we had to look at his habits, and I had to change like where he'd um, where he'd like get off the train to go to work, and where he'd park his car, and things like that. I was like, I need you to do less, because like, because you're just going through so much, and it was so hard to be able to get him to do that because he'd been doing it for like years anyway, and then we dropped him into an actual deficit. Um, so it was difficult There's to try and massing. Sorry, massing as well. Where um, like sometimes there's a there's a like a kind of miscompute that goes on where people suddenly realize at one point the habits you're you're adopting to maximize your muscle tissue are not habits that are healthiest for your kind of human existence mm. like you're saying there like you're telling him to reduce his activity level to walk less to get more public transport and there's often a dichotomy in the way people are thinking because there's this perception that every pursuit within fitness is maximizing your health mm. and then for a lot of people like myself included being a, a trainer like there are those periods where you have to deliberately adopt habits that you know you're going to have to break later on. They're almost what I'd call like temporary habits where you're like, you have to be aware. Same with like nutrition tracking with contest prep clients. Sometimes I feel like with the client, I have to say like, it depends on the client, but sometimes you're like, look, we're going to have to go to a point where I don't want you to be, but it's only temporary and we have to acknowledge because everyone's heard those stories of clients who are like broken by contest prep. I feel like the best way to avoid that is by making it really clear which habits are temporary and which ones are, are kind of permanent. And accepting that, like, you, this may change the way you think about food. And then we're going to have to spend some time changing the way you think about food back to where it should be afterwards. But, yes, yeah, I guess it's just temporary habits, yeah. Hmm. So that we, aren't necessarily the best for health. No, exactly right. Like, uh, And I think that's what a lot of people have this misunderstanding of that their pursuit, again, is they always have health as a pillar. And you're like, well try to get you stagely and it's not healthy so we're going way against this fundamental foundation or this pillar just for again a temporary period of time to get the date get the photo shoot get the photos and then get the hell out of there making it really clear that it's te temporary and it's just for one day is really important as well like you, you've I, I, i've had it with clients and i know other people have had it where um you, you get the goal you get the photo shoot and then you're like right it's, it's time to move to, to go to a different place now it's time to get healthy again and they're like i want to be shredded and you're like 
Yeah, your body doesn't want yeah. it to be shredded, though. <laughs> yeah. Move so, if we look at the the, the lean bulking, bulking protocol still, but from a training perspective, what does that look like from you? So, assuming someone's gone to the body fat level that they're where need, they need to be, what does that training look like? What does the volume look like? Do you jack it up because the people have got more energy and more calories to be able to use to build muscle tissue? Um, you have to read the feedback from the client, but you also have to know what you're looking for. So I think a really, really good habit to get into, whether you're coaching yourself or you're being coached by someone else, is to ask yourself like some sort of weekly questions, which is obviously the benefit of having a coach. They say things like, how, how did this week feel for you? How did the sessions go? Did you improve performance on last time? Did you feel like you finished the session with a lot left in the tank? Um, how was your soreness post-session? And it's like taking all those things and um, making sure that you're, actually listening to them because a big mistake I see a lot of guys making with well I say guys just because it's typically guys who ask me the questions but I'm sure that women make the same mistake is the same way that they approach a lean gaining phase without any nutrition structure they approach it without any uh, training structure as well they just be like I'm going to train five days a week I'm going to that misconception that they have to lift really heavy weights as well they're like going to train five times a week I'm going to start lifting really heavy and then I'm going to get jacked as fuck but they just get fat as fuck and what I like to do is set up their training in exactly the same way I would for a, a car. So we typically, like most training blocks I program tend to be around six weeks. Like some might be five, some might be seven, but they tend to be around six weeks. And I like to take people to increase the, the absolute intensity and the relative intensity every week. So um, week one I tend to sit people around two sets per exercise, two to three sets per exercise. And I like to have an exercise for every relevant movement pattern. So, you know, like a couple of vertical pulling exercises, a couple of horizontal pulling, a couple of vertical pressing, vertical yeah. uh, horizontal pulling, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then um, obviously we're not expecting them to be super, super sore that first week. And then generally just add sets where it makes sense to add sets. But at the same time, I like the intensity to be increasing. So um, I don't know if you're familiar with the reps and reserve concept. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I like to use the reps and reserve concept, but not as like a Bible to stick to because a lot of clients, if I don't know them that well, I will make the, I will strongly recommend they fail in the first couple of weeks just to give us an idea of where their, their own perception of reps and reserve is because until you have that experience to failing, like I don't want to wait until the end of the first training block to, to find out that when they thought they were one rep and reserve, they were actually 10 reps and reserve. So often I'll make them just have a couple of weeks where I want them to take uh, every set to failure but that's why I keep the volume really low at like two sets and then that gives us a big indicator of um, what they're like say 10 rep max might be and then we can figure out from there how close to that we need to be and then when that person's had that first hand experience of like of actually failing on a lift they've never taken to failure before not not squats and I won't make them do like <laughs> barbell squats to failure but like say something that's relatively safe like dumbbell presses and stuff like that and then I, I that means that I can now say to that person right I want you to be around one or two reps away from there for the most of this block. And then in the last week, we're going to take you to that place again. And then just adding sets. So I typically add sets to compound lifts. Like say like someone's primary pressing movement is a flat dumbbell press and their primary leg movement is uh, as barbell squats. Their primary hamstring movement is RDLs. I'll add sets to those first, but I typically find that you get to a point with compound exercises where the, they just get a bit scary for the person when you've got too many sets on there, especially someone like barbell squats. When someone looks at their plan and they see like 
to be honest, I find anything more than three or four sets. You, you like, like I've had it myself. You're like, oh, get that dread because you know, like the the effort required to maintain the technical quality is going to get like exponentially higher set to set. So I like to utilize like machines quite a lot as well. Just from um, that goes for cutting and massing. Like, we'll have maybe like one leg workout could be uh, back squats, leg press, and leg extension. In, in that order, maybe like a couple of sets of each. So like the motivation to do the set is high because it's not a massive amount of sets to do, but we're still getting a lot of quality work in there. <clears throat> and then, like I said, increase the volume and increase the intensity week to week. And then the feedback from the client typically is like how, how, how sore you're getting, what's your motivation to train like, how long your session's taking. That's a really important one. I think a lot of online coaches miss to be honest, because when you're programming from a distance, often like you write something down in the program, then you don't realize it's going to take that client like over two hours to do. And then even if that client needs to do all those sets, the last 40 minutes of that workout, they've been brain dead. So it's been useless anyway. So I'm more of an advocate of higher frequency training from that perspective. If we get to that point where the sessions are really long, I might move into more of a full body approach just to get the the volume in. Um, And, the, I'm just trying to gather my thoughts again. I'm trying to put it instead of just like vomiting thoughts out. I'm trying to structure it in a way that's actually helpful. <clears throat> um, and yeah, I would generally make like try and coach the client into not feeling like Superman because if they've just been through like just take like a year of dieting, they tend to like, get like call it like the Superman paradigm where they think they're indestructible because training just feels awesome, and they start to go off plan a bit as well. Which is fine, but like going off plan because you're doing an extra set of like bicep curls is fine, but going off plan and like trying to max out your deadlift that you haven't done for two years is is not fine. So it's just stuff like that, like trying to coach the client mentally about how they're going to feel on the mass as well. I say that every every week you're going to feel like a new person. You're going to be like, oh, this is what being normal feels like. And then you have another week of mass and you're like, no, this is what being normal feels like. And then it kind of keeps going up and up and up. It's just making sure that they stay consistent and adherent as well. And I think a lot of that has to do with, with regular contact with the client and feedback about how they're finding the training. And if you're self-coaching, it's just asking yourself, like, are you maximizing, um, I guess, like this, what I consider like the, the progress triad, like, are you maximizing the mind-muscle connection to the point, to like the best possible point? Um, is your technique safe? Are you hitting a, a close enough range to failure? So... I guess for the majority of a training block, someone wants to be within three reps of failing and then um, just making sure that the exercise selection makes sense as well. Like for a lot of people, I don't, I, for a lot of people, a conventional deadlift is, is not a good hypertrophy exercise. For a lot of people it is, but for a lot of people it isn't. And you, like, does your programming make sense? Are you doing something that could be potentially limiting what you could do elsewhere? Like I tend to find with a conventional deadlift is someone could be doing a lot more work elsewhere say like without the, the lower back fatigue they get from the deadlift is influencing like their squats and their leg presses and all that kind of stuff which like, I know from my own training like my first few years I was way too attached to deadlifts and as a result I'm struggling with lagging legs in terms of size now and I think that's because the, a lot of the years training back then could have been a lot better spent on different exercises but I, my training was hard I was way more tired back then than I am now but I'm a lot bigger now than I was back then mm. so being tired isn't the be all and end all it's kind of what I'm getting at so we we touched briefly on on ab work a little bit earlier, but the question I want to ask you is is where's the balance of 
abs being made in the kitchen is it is that a true thesis theory or do, is there some sort of training that that you think that needs to be done obviously genetics going to play a part in it but where's your standpoint on that um i think like we spoke about this earlier on hmm. I, I think it's not really like our abs made in the kitchen rather made in the gym i think it's like abs are made with your habits hmm. so you're you can't expect to have like ryan reynolds abs if you don't have the lifestyle that ryan reynolds had to get those abs and i think that's the best way to put it like you can't i guess you could just diet and not do any kind of training but then you you might if if you don't have much of a training history at all you'll get to the point where we spoke about before where occasionally like you diet clients down who don't have much training history and then you're almost dieting them forever to try and find the abs because they don't have much muscular development down there and it's just like They've got a nice flat stomach, but they don't have the kind of, I guess, like the ridges and the crevices and the definition in the abs, which make them look like the kind of stereotypical abs. So for most people, I definitely include abdominal training in there. But that that serves two parts. It serves the part of obviously causing muscular hypertrophy in that area so that the abs are more developed, they stand out more. But it also comes from a place of like when people have decided they have a goal, they want to feel like what they're doing is, is progressing them towards that goal. And I, I've had this before, especially in my early years as a trainer, because um, you know there's there's like two real stances in in within trainers in there. There's there's almost like one group that are like you need to train your abs, and the other group that are like you don't need to train your abs at all. They're fine. Mm. And then in my earlier years, I was way more towards the other side, where I was like you don't need to train your abs at all. And then I'd find that adherence, you'd get adherence problems with clients as well, because they want to they want to be able to look at the plan you give them and clearly see how it gets them to their goal. And often when clients have said, like, I want to be lean, I want to do a photo shoot, I want to have abs, and then you give them the plan and there's no ab training, they, they find it hard to buy into that. So that's, it's definitely important that there is some abdominal training there, but you've got to make sure that it's, it's useful abdominal training. Like, you don't want them to be doing flutter kicks and bullshit like that on the floor because it's not going to help. Like, all that's going to do for most clients is give them a backache, whereas you want to make sure that it, you're training it like any other muscle. So if I was training my bicep, uh, for muscle growth, I'd want to completely stretch it, cause some muscle damage in the stretch, and then completely flex that muscle to the shortest possible position. And the abs are exactly the same. You want to take them through full um, stretch, which would be full spinal hyperextension, and you want to take them to a full contraction, which would be uh, like a posterior pelvic tilt and lumbar rounding, if at all possible. But some people, like, especially usually with guys who've been lifting their whole life, their lumbar spine is like a rigid concrete rod. And it's like, that's not flexing no matter what. So yeah. just like crunching as much as you can. And that's important. So the, the lifts I tend to go to with that would be like hanging leg raises in a really slow and controlled manner, decline crunches and cable crunches. Those, to be honest, are like my three go-tos. I don't think I've created a training plan without those exercises in for a couple of years now. And um, regarding the nutrition stuff, it's just about being consistent with that diet. So when you know that you're in the calorie deficit and you're getting the feedback that you're in it so you're a little bit hungry your body weight is is moving downwards at a predictable rate um if you have that in place then you know you're going to get to a point where you're lean enough to show the abs that you have but then you also want to make sure that you're training them but i guess another mistake i see people make is that they don't train their abs until they're dieting and it's like why are you doing that that's like waiting until you're in the worst possible position to try and grow your new muscle mass so that'd be why it's important that when we're in our lean gaining phase to sell them on why a little bit of abdominal training is really important, particularly if it means a lot to that client. But we mentioned someone, I think before we were recording, where like I've had a client in the past where genetically 
they just didn't have like the best uh, abs visually, which meant that when we dieted them right down, uh, they just didn't have any abdominal definition or at least any meaningful abdominal definition. So what that did, that client could have been like despairing and really upset about that. And I'm sure they were to an extent. But what we were able to do is set up a lean gaining protocol off the back of that where we almost did like an ab specialization. I guess it wouldn't be a specialization, but you, we did more ab training than I typically would. But the mistake this person made in the past is he never bothered to train his abs. And when he had, it only been on the two weeks where he felt like, oh, I want to get lean. And he'd done a bit of like crunches and some flutter kicks and leg raises. And then when we took him through a lean gaining phase, like peak bulk, he had better abdominal definition than he did at the bottom. And that's just because we'd grown some thickness and some muscle mass in that area so that he, you could just, you know, like what it does, like the, the thicker your abs are, the bigger your abs are. It'll just like any other muscle. When there's fat on top of it, yeah. it adds shape and structure and contours to that area. So it kind of looked like thicker in a good way. And I think it's just a, a testament to the fact that like, if you don't, if you don't train it, it's not going to grow. And even, even an untrained muscle doesn't look as good as a trained one, not from like a, a size perspective, but you get it, you see it all the time, you know, with what call them like the, you know, the, the gym fuck boys, they don't train their legs. So when they're at like festivals and stuff like that, and they're topless, the upper bodies look really good, but their legs just look shit. But you're not saying their legs look shit because they're small. It's just, it's almost like they're, they've got the legs of, of a child and put them on a man. I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to say it to insult them, but you know, like the just when a muscle, when it's like athletes, a trained muscle just always looks better than an untrained one. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to have been hypertrophied. It just, I feel like the, the muscle tone and stuff is much better. Like if that gym fuck boy had trained their upper body and got jacked, but they did running, their legs would look a lot better than if they mm. just didn't do anything. You see what I mean? It's almost yeah. like you get, you get their sedentary legs with the active upper body and there's just that, that disconnect there. The same with the abs as well. When I've had other trainees where they don't ever train their abs and they never have, and they've got like they've got pecs, they've got arms, they've got shoulders, and the abs just they just look weird. Yeah, yeah. Like, sure <laughs> I know what I mean. Yeah, it looks odd. It looks so just odd. adding some sets just tends to it, it, it's almost like ties the whole thing together. Yeah, it's like this body, our body's unison. Do you know what I mean? Like, why would you? Yeah, yeah. Com- like, would you purposefully just say I'm not going to train that muscle? You're like. Well, it all works together, so you might as well just train it all. You know, yeah, you're going to have your dominant muscles that you want to work a little bit more. You'll just work them a little bit more. There's the mental side of it as well. Like, you know, when you train a muscle and it feels a little bit more turned and it feels a bit tighter, Mm. I I don't ever get positive feedback about... I get get more positive feedback about that feeling in the abs than any other muscle. So people don't say like, oh, I love it when my legs feel tight and toned. It's like when often when you get people to train their abs properly, like full range of motion stretch extend, uh, extension contraction cycle you get feedback like oh i love it like when my abs kind of feel tight and makes people feel leaner as well when they train their abs mm. so that's another reason why i like to include it mm. so in, in answer to the question are abs made in the kitchen i'd say they're made in in your lifestyle like it's a combination of all those factors which is the answer that people don't want to hear but yeah it's kind of like you, you could if you try and train and do nothing else it's it's not going to look good for your abs if you diet and do nothing else it's probably not going to look good for your abs so just do both <laughs> just do both um i wanted to touch on habits habits routines that you might have if you are a habitual person by by nature but things you specifically put in in your day to optimize success and whatever that level of success that sort of means so what does the these first sort of one to three hours of your day look like is it 
quite routine or is it more of a you just get up and, and figure it out along the way? We're talking about pre-corona or since <laughs> we'll talk. We'll talk pre because things are going to get back to that stage at, at some point. So when before um, coronavirus, I was working with a lot of clients in person and I'm very much a morning person. So I'd be up at about quarter to five. I'm not like one of those rise and grind people. It's just I, I need to get up to get it out of the way when I'm freshest. So I'd work with clients from around 6 a.m. to about 9 a.m. And then typically have something to eat and then do my own training session and then have something else to eat. And then I'd move on to either doing some sort of social media work or working with my online clients. And it got to the point where I divided my week in two, where Thursday, Friday, Saturday was all online. And then Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday was all in person. And um, I guess the habits I'd follow would be I would prepare my breakfast the night before, which would be something that makes sense based on the goal that I have. But it's it's ninety nine percent of the time oats based, oat like porridge based. Yeah. What what do you guys call it? Porridge. We got oats not oats. Area? It's porridge in the UK, but it's oats here. Yeah, I, I've I've programmed myself to say oatmeal because of my American clients. Because you say <laughs> porridge, and they're like, "What do you mean what? porridge?" <laughs> yeah, and I've even heard it before where I've said porridge in a, in a Instagram post, and someone thought it was rice pudding. But anyway, <laughs> but yeah, so it's typically I. Prepare my breakfast the night before because I always know that if I don't, the day is worse. It just mm. adds a level of stress to my day, which is quite regimented. So I know that for that four-hour block, I'm with clients. And if I don't eat in the window I have to eat, which is, uh, I guess, between 5 and 6 a.m. or between 6 and 7, then that means that my training session is going to suffer because I haven't had the, the required fueling prior to that session. And then I feel like it's a knock-on effect with the whole day. It, it comes back to making sure the day starts really, really well. Mm. And then while I'm commuting, I will. Well, I haven't listened to a radio, a conventional radio, in probably like eight years. I feel like any time I spend commuting is time I want to spend uh, listening to a podcast or a book or something like that. It used to be very much um, had to be something that I was either bettering my business or my knowledge or something like that. But as I've got a little bit older, I've learned to appreciate like the wind-down time and the kind of. My, my library has gone from being exclusively non-fiction to like including my whole range of interests, not just like fitness and hmm. business. And I definitely enjoy my commutes much more because of that. And then, yeah, so I do the training sessions with the clients and then I do my own training session. And typically, if, if it's the beginning of a training block, I'll probably listen to audiobooks and stuff again. If it's the end of a training block, I'll listen to music because otherwise I won't be able to focus and it'll take me like nine hours to do the session. And then obviously have post-workout meal which is nearly always um, like chicken and vegetable based. I know it's not best for like, recovery. Like obviously you read in literature, you want to be having protein and carbohydrates post-workout, but I tend to find that that's just one of the, one of the only meals I have time to sit down and eat it. So I tend to load it with veggies and the, because otherwise when it comes to the evening on some days I'll be with clients again and I'll be doing that whole you know like trying to get food in quick between clients rather than actually being able to sit down and eat it mm. so it doesn't make sense for me to have like boiled potatoes and um, a shitload of veggies at 6pm because that's mm. another peak training time with clients and I can't be like sitting there with a full you know like Tupperware tub it tends to be like something I can just neck between clients and then in the evening um I like to have pretty much the same dinner most days. It's nearly, it's pretty much protein and veggies because I'll get my carbohydrates in an earlier meal. And in the evenings, I can't be bothered to cook. So it will be chicken, beef, salmon, or something like that with like as many vegetables as I can find. 
and then sleep is sleep can be something that I think everyone can improve so sleep with me is usually um, I try and go to bed between uh, 10 and 11 because I, I start very much suffer from that thing you know where you feel like you haven't had any downtime and you try and force the downtime in the time you should be sleeping and then you just create that stress for yourself where you're like oh no like I've killed my sleep now but yeah I, I typically I think the most important daily habits would be to we I alluded to it earlier on, but it's trying to eat the same things every day because that just makes life so much easier. Not mm. the same as in like you're going to have exactly the same vegetables, but mm. the composition of your meals and the timing is pretty much the same. Is there a particular book that you've read or article or audio book that you've listened to, podcast, over the last sort of 12 months that's had a, a positive influence on your life? Yeah, there's there's always a few. There's a, There's a few that I constantly revisit. Just have a look at audible now there's none are jumping to mind but i just have to look at the ones like i read obviously i've read crush it or listen to crush it by gary v and crushing it and stuff mm. i find that when i need a bit of a kick up the ass that helps mm. gary v feels like the mate that you don't like asking their advice because you already know what it's going to be yeah yeah where like you know like i i my my mum's like this and i love her for it where i'm like I might go to her because I have some issues or I'm struggling. I don't know which direction to go in. And she basically says, in other words, just sort yourself the fuck out. Yeah. Yeah. No, stop overcomplicating yeah. it. Like, what do you fucking want? Yeah. Go, go, just go and do that. Yeah. So my, I guess the ones that I revisit often, uh, I use the, the Harry Potter books as a sleeping oh. aid. So I probably listen to those so many times, but it's usually because it helps me fall asleep. I guess it's like the childhood comforts and stuff like that. Like, I will fall asleep within the eight-minute sleep timer when I'm listening to the Harry Potter books. So that's what I use them for. And then um, books that I've read. I like... Um, where's it gone? The the E-Myth Revisited. Um, I like a lot of the psychology stuff as well. And Do you know any Grant Cardone stuff? I know Grant Cardone. I've, I've not actually read any stuff. I've studied him a fair bit and, and some of his stuff. I don't think it's massively useful i just really enjoy it okay like his, i think it's a combination of his personality and his kind of uh, charisma and enthusiasm mm. i just find it really funny and it gets me fired up about whatever i'm doing even if it's nothing to do with business mm. like just the cheeky attitude like he's got a book called the closer survival guide where he's just running you through um like sales objections and how to overcome them but the whole thing is just ridiculous and it's almost a parody of sales it's, it's like an environment that you you like that never exists it's like you know two guys in a boardroom with a fountain pen between them and it's like one guy is trying to outmaneuver the other guy to get him to sign this sign his life and savings away and just it's just hilarious the kind of the i guess the like the overtness with which he's selling and uh extreme ownership is another one i just i have such a broad range of interests but the one that's probably resonated with me the most is uh eat that frog have you read that one? I've not. I've not actually even heard of that one. No. Right, Brian Tracy. So it's just um, eat that frog. The frog being the the thing that you need to do the most is usually the thing that you're putting off. Hmm. And then my days are almost are always so much more productive when I do the task I'm avoiding first. Hmm. And then we all do it, and I find that the the point of the book is saying that like, eat that frog. It's like if you eat the frog first, if you, like eating a frog's not a pleasant experience. So if you make sure you do that first, then you get it out of the way, and you're not thinking about it for the rest of the day. Yeah. Whereas if you leave the frog, which is the task that you don't want to do, if you keep putting it off, then it influences all the other tasks tasks you're trying to do because you're trying to procrastinate to push that task back and out of the way. So 
it just is a massive productivity boost. And then I find myself saying it in my head as well. Like just like when I'm writing my to-do list or something and then I'm putting something on there and then you know you 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 hear the voice in your head as well, which is like kind of telling you it doesn't want to yeah. do it and you're just like, oh, for fuck's sake, just do it now. Yeah, no, so I, I agree. I think I like the the paradigm of there's two different thought processes. I think there is the 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 eat the frog concept of like do the hardest task first the rest of the day is is easier or i guess i guess it's very much person to person or choose the lowest hanging hanging fruit first so you start this this uh perpetuation of of success of like okay make your bed do this do this do this do the easier task then you're more likely to be a bit more motivated when the hard task comes you're already on firing neurons are already firing you're ready to go and smash it out so i like the the two different sort of elements of that and try to my girlfriend and i got completely different lifestyles i'm a morning person and she's not so i could never start my day by making the bed because there's always someone fast asleep in it still when i get up (laughs) (laughs) um and uh, i do want to be uh, really appreciate the time but what are you working on next what's any you got any big projects coming up for for the rest of 2020 um obviously working with sorry (coughs) working with revive stronger Mm. and uh we're obviously growing the coaching uh business all the time we're working with new clients all the time we recently expanded the coaching team to include me because obviously i wasn't always part of revive stronger Hmm. and we have a few things in the works there's three big projects i know that we're doing that i can't talk about um not necessarily because they're secret just because we don't know how to do them because of coronavirus (laughs) and all that kind of stuff but obviously we'll figure it out and then in my own personal side of things there's um obviously gearing up to return to in-person training in Hmm. whatever shape that may take like i recently made my own private studio so awesome well i converted my garage into a gym it's not really a private studio but it absolutely is it's the definition of private you're in your own home yeah so it's again like, uh, yeah so i guess it's like trying to set that up for myself in a way that makes sense from in a way that enriches my life and doesn't detract from it i know that sounds a bit like floozy but like part of the issue of like training people in a commercial gym is is the logistics of managing it because like if clients only want to train 6am to 8am or 5pm to 8pm it really doesn't work when you have it'll work I feel like it works when you're 19 but it doesn't necessarily work when you're getting that little bit older and you want to build a more sustainable lifestyle for yourself so I guess that's what's in it for me in the future is creating that more sustainable lifestyle for myself no I love that man lastly where can people reach out find you say hello and ask you any questions that they may have um I was going to say Xbox Live but (laughs) (laughs) Probably Instagram's the best place. Instagram is a platform I find the the most user friendly. Like I find Facebook is really clunky and annoying. I know a lot of people feel the same way. But yeah, Instagram. So it, my Instagram bio would be trainer Harry underscore S. And obviously the Flu Revive Stronger website. If you're interested in any coaching or if you want to read it and find out a little bit more about just maximizing your muscle mass and minimizing your body fat, especially our member site. We put together so much content on there. Are you aware of the member site? I'm not actually no. So that's Steve doing a crap job of plugging it. Come on, Steve. Um, so the member site is something we've built, which is a really, really low cost. I, I think it's about six pounds a month. So it's probably like, what, like $8 a month or something yeah, like that? Yeah, 12, and maybe it's, 8, 10, 12, yeah. Uh, we've got like numerous presentations from all of our coaches and then like loads of really, really great minds in the industry on every topic you could ever think of to do with building muscle so i've done a few presentations myself on how to structure your training program returning to the gym um how to build your winning nutrition environment and the success principles of bodybuilding i know steve has done one on like exercise selection for bodybuilding pascal has done loads we've had stuff from loads of people who i can't think of right now (laughs) 
That's good. All those will be on leaked in the show notes below. As always, guys, you can just directly go straight to, to all the places that Harry just recommended. And Harry, thank you so much for your time today. It really has been a pleasure. Thank you for having me on.